The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Professor Jennifer J. Carroll, Ph.D., MPH, is a medical anthropologist, research scientist, and subject matter expert on substance use and public health. She's currently an assistant professor of anthropology at North Carolina State University and an adjunct assistant professor of medicine at the Albert Medical School at Brown University. Dr. Carroll appeared recently at an event organized by the U.K. charity Drug Science, part of their Street Drugs Discussions series entitled Global Impacts of War and COVID-19, where she discussed her research on Ukraine and on St. Petersburg, Russia. So um, these are the two areas particularly in which we were working. So on the bottom, I've been across Ukraine for quite a while, um, and I'll be talking a little bit about um, as much as I know. Um, there's probably people on the call looking at the, um, the list who who are a bit more updated than I am. They don't call it the fog of war for nothing. Um, but I'm going to start north in St. Petersburg, where we were doing a study that, that we contributed to the collaborative about how people who use drugs were impacted. So the purpose of this um, was to really look at how the um, the COVID-19 epidemic, especially its strictest lockdowns and quarantines, were impacting people who use drugs. There's a lot of uh, very intelligent people making very intelligent hypotheses like things will get worse, drug markets will destabilize, treatment will be harder to get, there may be more aggressive or forceful policing because of... Um, the need to enforce lockdowns or things of that nature. So this study actually emerged as what we call in the U.S. an administrative supplement, it's a financial term, but also um, a sort of an adjunct to a project that was already running called Stigma, Risks, Behaviors, and Healthcare Among HIV-Infected Russian People Who Inject Drugs, or the script study. Uh, The PI is Dr. Karsten Lunza, um, who is with us today. He's fantastic. Um, And uh, essentially, the the reason why we wanted to do this in St. Petersburg is one that we already had um, ongoing relationships with people who are participating in this study. Um, There's a whole team of folks between the U.S., uh, Germany, Russia, Ukraine, who have actually been collaborating on this project. So it was a really natural collaboration, and there was just a lot of concern for these populations. So we took this opportunity to talk to folks already in the study um, who we uh, were able to just bring back for more interviews. So this is the structure of the script study on the left, um, that there were a number of people recruited. The inclusion criteria were um, being an adult, living in St. Petersburg, living with HIV and not currently receiving any treatment, um, and living with an opioid use disorder and also not currently in treatment. So what we did was recruit from these folks in the orange on the right, the 67 people who went through this intervention in the larger randomized controlled trial. Um, it was an anti-stigma intervention in which people came in for for um, a few different sessions in groups to work on um, uh, emotional regulation and and setting goals and things of that nature. So between March and June 2021, we conducted semi-structured interviews with folks in St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, It's a little bit misleading. We did not actually get to go to St. Petersburg, Russia. So we did interviews with people in St. Petersburg, Russia, Um, but it it did feel like quite a time to be alive when we had uh, me in North Carolina in the United States, um, my partner, uh, Tatyana, who's in Ukraine, usually calling from Kiev or Odessa, um, on the phone, usually on WhatsApp with someone who are fabulous partners um, in St. Petersburg had recruited over there. And we had all these uh, sort of three-way WhatsApp calls to do these interviews um, 
And it was, it was challenging, uh, but I would do it again in a heartbeat. And really what we were uh, looking for is understanding when we interviewed these few people that we pulled, plus a number of service providers, was what the facilitators and barriers of healthcare specifically were for these folks um, and how other things in their environment changed. All right. So um, because I can't call everyone out by name, these are all of our collaborators um, on this particular segment of this larger project. We also have larger teams working um, in Kiev and, and St. Petersburg to whom we're very, very much in debt. But this is right now where these findings have ended up in print. Next slide, please. So some of the things that we found uh, were unexpected. Um, I know, as I said before, there's a lot of very intelligent people um, who developed a lot of very intelligent hypotheses about how um, things were just going to get a lot worse for people who use drugs. In a lot of ways, those predictions were correct. Um, but this one was not necessarily. There were predictions that the drug market was going to fluctuate uh, very much in the United States. That absolutely was the case. If you look at our overdose numbers for the last two years, um, they're incredibly upsetting. And it's the first time we had a sort of natural disaster, quote unquote, um, uh, really causing fluctuations in the drug supply as opposed to, to other things. Um, but in St. Petersburg, we got reports pretty consistently that there were no fluctuations in the drug market that people noticed that were so big that they would attribute it to COVID. Um, oftentimes, the answers we got were like, eh, things are always kind of like getting better, getting worse anyway, or things are always getting worse. So it's this, this constant decline that wasn't interrupted by COVID. Um, so while we do know that there are some things, uh, Joe mentioned earlier, that I've participated in some research looking at the connection between drug seizure and overdose, uh, we have been able to demonstrate in some American cities that um, increases of drug seizures by police does lead to a statistically significant increase in overdoses in the surrounding area. Uh, but those increases are not so big that other people notice them, right, and recognize the wave. So there very well could have been impacts of COVID supply chains on local drug markets, but if they existed, no one was noticing them. They weren't of that particular magnitude. Um, we also learned that empty streets in the earliest days of COVID made um, seeking dead drops for drugs more visible and, and riskier. Um, so I'm not sure what the situation is right now um, where you all are. In the United States, this was this was all very, very new to me and an interesting thing to learn about. Uh, but the drug market or, or actual drug buys uh, small time like small personal use kind of purchases um, aren't really happening hand to hand anymore um, in St. Petersburg and other parts of Russia and parts of Ukraine we're hearing this become the norm instead what happens is a system um, that's that we've been calling the dead drop system um, and so this is where uh, the purchaser will go online to a darknet website um, make the purchase there's Folks are just like, there's lots of stores, there's a, you know, review systems, it's pretty easy to navigate. And then there will be a local delivery person who will bring whatever has been purchased, stash it somewhere at a location. Sometimes you can choose and it's like around the metro station, right, or near the grocery store. And they'll stash those drugs, tag them, sometimes maybe send a picture of like it's underneath this flower pot. Um, and then the client will have to go and, and find the drugs that have been stashed for them. So because the earliest days of lockdown, this streets were pretty clear and there were more police out to um, enforce that quarantine. Uh, folks who use drugs said that it was just 
kind of dire to go outside um, into public places where these stashes happen and, and retrieve what they had purchased. So for the first few weeks, it was much harder to obtain drugs. But after that, things began to normalize the um, quarantine or at least its enforcement began to relax. There ended up being more people on the street, fewer law enforcement out, and then things pretty much returned to normal after that. Um, there were other things, this is what I found particularly interesting, especially as a medical anthropologist and especially as a medical anthropologist who, um, uh, identifies as a, a harm reductionist first and foremost, before I identify as a researcher or academic. Um, I guess I say that because one of my major motivating, um, uh, or reasons why I have gone into this area of research that I do is because um, I I hold the honest belief that I feel like is grounded in evidence and not that controversial that the vast majority of harms that people experience as a result of any kind of substance use comes from the criminalization and or very poor and punitive institutional response to those behaviors. Um, and so what we found here in St. Petersburg, instead of things just blanket getting worse for people who use drugs, we actually found that a lot of things got way better during COVID-19. And the reason why is because the sort of top heavy, very expensive to operate uh, policing and institutional structures that are meant to surveil, to contain, um, to bar uh, individuals from services were themselves disrupted by the disruptions of COVID, right? So um, after the COVID-19 restrictions began, people reported less police harassment or none at all after the first weeks of the lockdown ended. Um, I say less because I didn't scroll through every single interview we had before I got on this call to make sure that not a single person mentioned being touched by the police. Um, but I don't remember an instance from any of those interviews. And I in fact remember several instances where folks are like, gosh, you know what? They haven't messed with me in months, like while we were doing the interview, just like putting it together themselves. Um, HIV treatment was relaxed, at least the regulations around obtaining medications. Um, this is true in the United States as well. We, we imp uh, implemented some much needed and long overdue uh, telehealth regulations that we are now still fighting to keep in place. Um, but HIV treatment, this suddenly became possible to do uh, follow-up appointments um, over... Uh, telehealth uh, so that people didn't have to make these long train commutes into the city to go to the AIDS center. Um, and sometimes there was home delivery of medication, which also saved people these travel times. And it kind of, especially if you're on public transit, it can take some folks two hours to get into the city center and then two hours to get out. And it's your whole day just to pick up your prescription. Um, on the flip side, however, Substance use treatment, which in um, the Russian Federation is all talk-based, became totally inaccessible because it was all talk-based. There were not telehealth um, or phone uh, uh, programs that were implemented or enabled during COVID-19. Uh, so the, due to the fact that the center was shut down and people couldn't meet in person, there just simply was no support at all. Um, for some folks, uh, that became a bit challenging because many people who were in those talk-based substance use treatment programs uh, were there for court mandates. Um, and so, so long as the uh, center is shut down and you can't receive treatment, you cannot finish your court mandate and you remain in that sort of judicial limbo. Um, but there was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't all uh, freedom and, and fun and games during COVID. There were also a lot of other concerns that were exacerbated, uh, particularly uh, people living with HIV and people who use drugs, uh, many of whom are also living with HIV, uh, found uh, that they 
had very, very poor access to COVID services. And there's a couple of reasons why this was. Some were um, externally imposed and some were internally imposed. Um, I think one of the best examples that came up in our interviews of an externally imposed barrier to COVID services is the fact that the substance use treatment facility, which slowly, slowly started opening up over time, um, was not authorized to provide COVID-19 tests. And yet you had to have a COVID-19 test showing that you were negative in order to access uh, certain emergency services or, or inpatient things of that nature. Um, so because they were not authorized to provide these tests, the narcology hospital had to refer people elsewhere, and that referral was put on narcology hospital letterhead. So, it, I mean, imagine just showing up somewhere for basic primary care services, and you have to show a document that's like XYZ Rehab Center for Criminal Addicts is sort of how that reads um, in, in the mind of, of any other healthcare provider that might be reading it. And so folks were like, I guess I'm not getting a test then, <laughs> right? Um, so that some people paid money to go to private clinics, uh, money which they may or may not have had in the first place, uh, but many people just declined to receive those services. Um, there's also very significant anti-HIV stigma in healthcare, um, not only in Russia um, and a lot of places uh, in the world, but also in Russia. Um, and that belief um, fueled, or that stigma fueled a belief that we found very interesting among a lot of people we interviewed, they told us they were not eligible to receive COVID-19 vaccines. Um, occasionally, there were some individuals who said that their provider informed them that the fact that they were immunocompromised or on antiretroviral treatment meant that they could not get the vaccine. Um, when we spoke to providers, they were like, we don't know how they got that idea, but more than one person shared that idea with us. Um, at the same time, um, many felt that even if uh, they were technically able to get the vaccine while living with HIV or on antiretroviral therapy, uh, they would not be allowed to receive it in any way, that people with HIV are always the lowest to be prioritized on um, on any sort of uh, priority list. And so they just assumed that they would be denied um, at the point of service and, and never attempted to go. This is a presentation by Dr. Jennifer Carroll, an assistant professor of anthropology at North Carolina State University and an adjunct assistant professor of medicine at the Albert Medical School at Brown University. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. So at this point, I'm going to be transitioning over to talk just a little bit about what's been happening uh, since Russia began its war in Ukraine, um, especially with people uh, living with HIV, but also people who are using opioid agonist treatment. Uh, one thing that bears mentioning here is that unlike Russia, in which these medications are banned outright, um, Ukraine offers access to opioid agonist treatment for opioid use disorder, specifically the two medications they provide access to are methadone and buprenorphine. There were about seven 17,000 people on opioid agonist treatment in Ukraine at the start of the invasion. And um, that number was actually quite an improvement when I stopped doing full-time data collection, uh, by which I guess I mean my full-time dissertation work. Uh, when I was living in Ukraine in 2014, that number was closer to 8,000. Um, there has since been a lot of um, I think uh, liberalization, uh, we could do a lot more, but a bit of that prescription regime, uh, more government support. And so that number has more than doubled in the last decade, which has been really wonderful. So the places that I'm familiar with are Kiev, uh, 
uh, Lviv and Ivano-Frankivsk in the west, um, Cherkasy in the center, Mykolaiv, uh, Kherson, which was just liberated. I've done work in Simferopol and Sevastopol in Crimea, and most recently in Kharkiv. So these are the places where I had uh, personal knowledge of how OAT programs were operating, um, especially in the last decade, and I'll be offering updates from those places as, as well as I can. Um, but mostly what I wanted to point out is that um, some of the places where I've been able to do work have had wildly different logistical relationships with this and previous Russian invasions during this, this decade. So a lot of what I'm going to be sharing today comes from um, work that was hustled out the door by a bunch of really, really great advocates for this type of work. Uh, the first one published in Lancet Public Health by Rick Altice, um, and the second published in Lancet Regional Health Europe by Daniel Bromberg. Uh, these are both really, really informative pieces. Um, there's been a bit more uh, since these came out. Um, there, I know Medscape has covered this. Uh, there's been some really nice long form by Al Jazeera and a few other places. But if um, if you're looking for thoughtful, detailed assessments of what exactly is happening with these national systems. I recommend these two pieces um, implicitly. Okay, so just as a reminder, there were about 17,000 people on opioid agonist therapy before the war and about 150,000 people on antiretroviral therapy for HIV. Um, that is not including um, con uh, separatist controlled regions in Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast, which is the area occupied um, prior to the invasion in February, um, or in Crimea, which is the area illegally annexed in 2014. So what's happening with medication access? Um, some positive things, some not so positive things. So there have been um, expansions, as I mentioned, some liberalizations of the prescription regime for, um, sorry, that should say OAT, not M-O-U-D. I got a little too American um, on you this morning while I was editing these. So opioid agonist treatment is now legally obtainable through private clinics through a fee-for-service model. Um, this is not obviously the solution for everyone, but it is good to have choices and more options, um, especially given that in order to receive treatment, OAT treatment in public clinics, you have to go onto a registry of known narcomani in your city uh, that is maintained by the police. It operates very similar to um, the sex offender registry that we keep in the United States. Like you can't live near a school, you can't have a driver's license. Um, so having, even though it's through a fee-for-service model, having this available through private clinics, um, great, no complaints. It allows just people different options. Um, and this was liberalized even further recently because there was a way in order to get around legislation to go to the private clinics to pay for um, these medications over the long term, because these are, of course, long-term treatments. They're not meant for short-term tapers. And they used to be able to file the prescriptions as long-term detox. So like we're tapering this person just over a year and a half, right? Um, and so now they're able to just above board offer that treatment. Um, the Ministry of Health um, has allowed 90 days uh, of a take-home supply for antiretroviral treatment for people living with HIV. That's an increase from what they were allowing in the past. Um, there was also an increase to a 30-day take-home supply of opioid agonist treatment medications. Um, that is the type of take-home prescription regimen that in the United States we require people to be basically perfect and have... Um, urine that smells like baby's breath um, for almost two years before they're able to get access to. 
Interestingly, this was partly the result of policies that were implemented during COVID-19. Um, I know, especially in Kiev City, in the capital, there was a shift to allowing 30-day take-homes when COVID uh, happened and the strictest restrictions and, and quarantines were in place. Um, and many people, they switched, if I'm not mistaken, 100% of people over to the take-home regime. Um, after that mandate to do take-home ended, a few people, um, I've been told by local collaborators, around 10% went back to supervise dosing largely on a consensual and request-based basis, um, but the vast majority of people continued taking these take-homes. So they, they liberalized for this, the purpose of COVID and then just never undid it. And then at the beginning of the war, this became a nationwide policy. Um, some clinics were collaborating to ensure that those medi medications um, continue to be available despite disruptions. And so that involved like clinics uh, stockpiling medications together, um, working to coordinate with patients together, especially as different supply chains were disrupted. And then really, really wonderfully, there were a lot of I guess I shouldn't say wonderfully because it's sort of devastating that this was needed in the first place, but, you know, people um, can be really amazing. And there were a lot of uh, mutual aid groups, social networks, just open lines of communication, especially on the Telegram app, where people were updating each other regularly, sort of like a live Reddit thread about uh, where um uh, medications could be found, what pharmacies were stocked that morning. And so there was this sort of crowdsourced information about what was happening with supply chains that patients could um, make use of. And the picture on the right, I actually grabbed this sometime back in March, uh, but these, because it's it's still winter, <laughs> this was taken, but this is an organization that works in Dnipro. And uh, Dnipro has remained under uh, Ukrainian control and has not been occupied uh, by Russian forces, but it has been very close to a lot of the front lines, has been hit by a lot of shelling. And these are um, individuals from a harm reduction group in Dnipro who continued going house to house, delivering medications, delivering naloxone, providing sterile syringes, even as um, the earliest uh, bombardments were happening. All right. So things that are hindering medication access. Um, I'm sorry if you were hoping to not see Putin this morning. I apologize. Um, one of the reasons why I put him here is because I don't know if folks recall this happened, I believe, back in March or early April as well. Um, when you say, you know, the wild, the bizarre speech that Putin gave, that's become profoundly less specific uh, these days. But this was um, one of his earliest addresses uh, after the war began, I believe his second or third public address after the war began, where he was still pushing the anti-Nazi, uh, the false anti-Nazi tone of, of the, the invasion, um, because that still apparently had some traction with some people. And he referred to the government in Kiev, specifically to Zelensky's whole administration, as gangs of neo-Nazis and drug addicts. Um, and it was, it was very, very, um, and it was surreal for me to hear because I wrote an entire book about how the marginalization of people who use drugs became um, a, uh, a key process in establishing sovereignty in occupied Crimea um, and the way in which these sort of like exclusionary processes is actually very central to the um, uh, imagination or perception of the Ukrainian state, um, as well as um, different calls for, uh, I guess, Russian-backed calls for independence in eastern Ukraine. Um, so, so hearing this discourse again and again and again still being used, like appealing to the presence or accusation of drug use as um, a discrediting and exclusionary tactic, um, I, like my my book is still right, and that makes me sad. Um, 
But uh, the things that, in addition to the discourse that really relies on the exclusion of people who use drugs as a sort of anti-citizen to prop up the idea of the state, which is pervasive and very impactful. There were also a number of logistical things that were happening that were hindering medication access. Um, Oh, oh, I know he's been calling people Nazis forever. um, And that's... um, wrong uh but this i thought of this i'm responding to the chat karsten is making a, a apt observation that this has been an on, ongoing thing so it was not limited to this one speech um the specific phrase gangs of nazis and drug addicts was specific to this speech and that's what i was hoping to call attention to um but there is no state level disaster plan for patients that are receiving opioid agonist treatment Um, Treatment plans for people who are impacted by the war are largely left up to local physicians during emergencies who may or may not have the appropriate level of training to make those decisions. Um, Some private providers, despite the liberalization of that prescription regime, have been discouraged from providing OAT, um, serving as a certainly insufficient but helpful and uh, important to maintain stopgap to other public services. Um, So they've been discouraged from providing OAT by uh, state action against unscrupulous providers. So essentially um, a few targeted campaigns in which folks have been accused of uh, being what in the U.S. we call pill mills um, or unscrupulously uh, prescribing um, opioids to people. Um, At least at the beginning of uh, the war, and I'm not sure what the situation is with inventory now, but the vast majority of the stocks of these medications were kept near Kiev. It's a centralized healthcare system, and they're sort of, um, you know, go out to the oblast and the oblast give out to the clinics and so on and so forth. So the entire nation's stockpile of these medications after a few weeks when local supplies were running out were kept in the city that at the time was being bombarded, was being barricaded. This is when some of the heaviest fighting was still in the Bucha and Irpin area. Um, and there couldn't, they, folks just couldn't get the medications out. I even heard um, really active um, and intelligent uh, researchers and advocates calling for like the purchase of drones to be like, we will just fly the damn medications out of the city. If we have to, we've got to find a way to do it. Um, There were a number of pharmaceutical factories that were making these medications in country. Another great development, because when I was doing this work full time in 2013 and 2014, the vast majority of these medications were imported from Germany or from India. That certainly slows things down. And then finally, There's been lots of public communication about antiretroviral treatment for people living with HIV, um, for people who are diabetic or need tuberculosis care, but there's been no public comment, at least that I am aware of to date, about um, uh, opioid agonist treatment and accessing it. Um, There has been, back in May, um, I'm aware of at least one sort of like situational report about access to opioid agonist therapy. Um, it's, I can throw it in the chat. Um, I apologize. It is Ukrainian, um, but it's, it Google translate does a pretty good job. Um, so this was put out in May with a bit of information about the status of folks receiving this treatment, but in their public channels and their telegram channels in their, you know, SMS pushes, that's not really being messaged at all. Um, So what you've got on this slide, for example, on the right is um, an example of the type of public messaging that the, uh, this is actually the Center for Public Health, um, part of the Ministry of Health of Ukraine is putting out on their Telegram channel. Um, Like, for example, it says important people living with HIV can receive antiretroviral treatment in their, uh, in in the town where they're actually located. Um, And this is one of the, again, sort of like liberalized uh, prescription regimes that they're um, putting into place because of disruptions of the war. Um, They've been able to do things 
things like reduce accounting requirements for reimbursement and, and payment of different clinics. Um, recently, Ukraine nationalized uh, its primary healthcare system, and there are a lot of government payments that are tied to individual patients, to individual um, dispensing of medications, things of that nature. Um, and essentially, uh, the government said that they're just going to send every clinic 12% of the cost of their annual contracts with patients without requiring any sort of receipt or reimbursement forms. Um, that may have changed at this point, but that was happening at the beginning. Um, they created a hotline to assist patients with medication access. Um, of course, the hotline has to know where those medications are as well. So it, it suffers similar limitations as civil society. Um, there's a lot of coordination with neighboring notion, uh, nations like Poland, Moldova, Latvia for the continuation of care. Um, and importantly, they've listed the address and registration requirement for HIV, tuberculosis, and opioid agonist treatment. That was a presentation by Professor Jennifer J. Carroll, Ph.D. MPH, medical anthropologist, research scientist, and subject matter expert on substance use and public health. She's currently an assistant professor of anthropology at North Carolina State University and an adjunct assistant professor of medicine at the Albert Medical School at Brown University. She spoke at an event organized by the U.K. charity Drug Science as part of its Street Drugs Discussion Series entitled Global Impacts of War and COVID-19. Dr. Carroll's first book, Narcomania, Drugs, HIV, and Citizenship in Ukraine, was released from Cornell University Press in 2019. And that's it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Find this edition of Century along with an archive of past shows at the Drug Truth Network website, drugtruth.net. You'll find a link there to subscribe to the Century of Lies podcast. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy reform and the failed war on drugs. For, For the now, Drug Truth this Network, is Doug, this is Doug asking you so to long. examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy. Thank you.